Sharon Harris is not one who wants much made of her, much attention drawn to her, but I just want you to know publicly how much I'm going to miss you. I miss Harvey a lot. I'm going to miss you a lot. Today we begin our series in the book of Hebrews. I'm excited about that. I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Hebrews in chapter 13. Sorry, chapter 12. We'll be looking at, uh, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, it's page 1009. And I'll be looking at verses 12 and 13. Because this is God's Word and we collectively want to just show our reverence and offer that, let's stand when God's Word is read. Hebrews 12, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You can be seated as we pray. Father, I'm so excited about this study before us in the book of Hebrews. And just talking to some in the congregation, I sense there's a collective excitement We need to hear from you, and you have particular things for our church to hear and to learn as we study your word. And so I pray, Father, that as we move forward in this book, you by your spirit would move mightily in our church, that each one of us, every soul here and that will be here through this series, would be spoken to by you, would have ears to hear and eyes to see. And Father, help me as I preach to be faithful in holding out the message of what you have said. And even today, as we commence our study, I pray that you would allow this book to start to become clear to us. And the very things that you have to say to each one of our souls, we would hear this morning. We open our hearts. We, we want to quiet the thoughts in our own head and listen and engage with what you've said. So we ask that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen. It's my prayer that at the end of this sermon, you will be convinced, you, not your spouse, not your friend, but you will be convinced that the message of the book of Hebrews is something you need. It's my prayer because I'm convinced that the evangelical church at large needs to rediscover the truths of the book of Hebrews. And more importantly, I believe our church, Maple Avenue, needs this book. And this morning, I have a simple plan for convincing you. I want to try and show you what the whole book is doing. And I'm going to do that in three sections. First, I want to introduce you to the original recipients of this letter. Second, I want to show you the persistent call to them. And third, I want to help you see the means by which the author makes that call. So my outline is section one, the recipients. 
Section two, the call. Section three, the means. So first to the recipients. My mother taught me whenever I was in a room and brought two people together that I knew both of them, that, I, that I, they should be introduced properly. And I learned from C.S. Lewis this quote, Friendship is born at that moment when one man says to another, What? You too? So I want to do this morning what my mother taught me to do. I want to introduce you to the recipients of this letter. And I suspect that what C.S. Lewis said would be, will be true amongst us. That you'll find that you have more in common with these recipients than perhaps you were expecting. So in order to get to know these Christians, I want, you to, I want to begin by looking at chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. So just one page back, page 1007. You'll want to have the book of Hebrews open as we go. So let me read Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. It says, But recall the former days, recall your past, when after you enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So this little, these three verses give us a glimpse into how this Christian community began. Early on, they had faced hard struggles and sufferings including being reproached or rejected for their faith, and even having their property plundered, and for some, being imprisoned. And in the face of this kind of onslaught, this, this hardship that they faced for their faith, how did they respond? I love the summary that chapter 610 gives. It says, they established a reputation for love and good works, We see that fleshed out here in the verses we just read. They walked alongside each other. Those who were going into prison, they stood alongside. They stood in solidarity with other believers who were badly treated or ostracized. And even when they were having their own property plundered, the author tells us they endured that knowing that, quote, they had a better possession and an abiding one. What a perfect outlook when you're being persecuted for your faith, when you're going through hard times. I have a better possession that's abiding. It can't be taken away. You couldn't have begun much better than these believers. They were walking with strong faith, genuine love, and a a robust hope in the face of hardship and affliction. But something happened along the way. Because now, they're not doing so well. They've worn down. Think about the verses we read at the outset from chapter 12. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. 
Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Such evocative imagery. Drooping hands, weak knees, lame. To put it differently, they're suffering from spiritual anemia. Do you know what anemia is? It's when in your body your red blood cells aren't at the right levels. And as a result, you feel constantly tired and worn down. Your body is weak and your skin takes on that yellowish hue. And that's what plagues this community. Spiritual anemia. We see that throughout the letter. In chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says... Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Do you see that the, the, they're, some of them are saying, I, I, I don't need to be at church every week. I don't need to be gathering with the saints. I'll be there sometimes. But you say, no, no, you've got to prioritize meeting together, and you've got to encourage one another when you're together because they're weak. Or in 3, 12 to 13, it says, Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. You guys need encouragement. Be encouraging each other so you don't fall away. Or in 12.3, he encouraged them not to, quote, grow weary or faint-hearted. They're dealing with spiritual anemia, spiritual fatigue, spiritual exhaustion. Can you relate to them a bit? I know I can. Maybe for a season you pursue Christ with a vibrant enthusiasm. But then it starts to peter out. You don't abandon the faith. But you just find that the waves crushing against you knock you off course a lot more easily now than they used to. You find yourself in a spiritual rut that's hard to escape. You start dabbling again with sins that you'd previously put behind you. You flag in your zeal. Sure, you're still in church. Yeah, you keep praying, but it's less earnest and less frequent. Your Bible sits closed. Not because you're rejecting it. You just find find it hard to pick it up and read it. Spiritual anemia. Weary Christians. Worn down. Threadbare. So what caused them? What caused them who started so well to wear down? How could people who began the way they did now be described as having drooping hands and weak knees at risk of falling out of joint? I mean, if if you read the hardships they're now facing, which are different than what they had at the beginning, don't seem all that extreme. It's true, we know from chapter 12, that God had allowed certain hardships into their lives with the goal of discipling them, disciplining them, and refining them. We're not told the nature of these hardships. 
But the author does say, quote, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So it was bad, but it was not too bad. We also know that they are facing persecution for their faith. That continues. And while their early persecution involved pain, imprisonment, and loss of property, their present persecutions, according to chapter 13, are of a different variety. It's the variety where there's a certain level of shame or reproach associated with following Christ. Perhaps it came from their Jewish friends who'd kicked them out of synagogues or Jewish family who disowned them. Or perhaps it came from Gentiles who distrusted them for worshiping a strange God and who thus wouldn't associate with them or maybe hire them. Now, I don't want to underplay it. That kind of discipline and persecution is hard. But it can't be the root cause of what caused them to, of the root cause that led them to peter out. We know that because what they're going through now is less intense than what they'd first faced. And that's when they were doing well. So the root cause isn't the hardships they're going through. So what is the root cause? For this, let's look back at chapter 5, and I'd like you to turn there with me. It's on page 1003. I'm going to read verses 11 to 14 of Hebrews 5. The author is about to talk about this Melchizedek figure from the Old Testament. And then in verse 11 he says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you you see what he's saying has happened? We'll know in just in chapter six, verse one to three, that they really they really did begin well. They they embraced certain teachings. So he talks about how they understood the nature of repentance and the true nature of faith. It shows how they learned the the, the right way and not the wrong way of associating with the body of believers. It'll talk about how they had true hope in the day when Christ would return and the resurrection of their bodies. So there's a lot of really good doctrine that they'd embraced early on. These basic elementary principles, what he calls the milk that new believers need to be able to understand and grasp. They understood this early on. But what had they failed to do? They'd failed to failed to continue to press in where they could actually understand God's Word at the level that they could actually teach it and understand the truths at greater levels. They hadn't borne down into the Word to understand who Christ was in all His fullness, and so they'd become dull of hearing. They were content with the basic knowledge they had. They were unwilling to feast on the meat so that they could think in careful discerning ways to parse good from evil. 
So he says they're dull of hearing. I remember in university being dull of hearing. I was dull of hearing related to my mother, to my own shame. I was in a, an environment where I was susceptible to all the world's influences, and so my mom would call me on occasion, or sometimes I'd call home, and then she would proceed to remind me of all sorts of things that, in my mind, I already know. And literally, sometimes she'd be going on, and I would hold the phone away from my ear. You know, I, I already know all that, Mom. I got it all down. I don't need to think anymore about those things. I don't need to dig deeper into that. I've got it all. And these Christians were that way, but with God's Word, with being in church on Sunday, with listening to rich sermons. They're holding the phone away from their ear. They aren't digging deep into God's Word and allowing it to shape them more and more, understanding it in deeper and deeper ways. And because of this, those waves that inevitably hit us, those waves would knock them off course. That spiritual anemia had left them too weak to stand strong, even in the face of what are now, for them, lesser waves. Do you know what the cause is of anemia? The main cause is a lack of vitamins and nutrients in your diet. Your body needs iron. Your body needs B12. And that's what allows it to build strong, healthy, red blood cells stocked with the hemoglobin they need. Their spiritual anemia had come from them being dull of hearing, from drinking only milk instead of moving on and eating meat. That's, that's the picture of the recipients of this letter, the Christian community to whom this letter is written. So now I've honored my mom. I've introduced you to the recipients. Are you C.S. Lewis-type friends with them? Are you saying, what? You too? I know I am. So I said the second section was the call. What is the call to these weary Christians? What does the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, say to them? Well, the call is consistent. It's a call to endure. Back in the days when a Jewish mother could name her son Adolf, there was a Jewish Christian pastor named Adolf Sather. And I have a copy of his sermons on Hebrews, and they're some of my favorite. I love them. Adolf Sather said this about Hebrews. In all his arguments, in every doctrine, in every illustration, the central aim of the epistle is kept prominent. The exhortation to steadfastness. 
the exhortation to steadfastness. A more recent commentator says, the author hammers home repeatedly the importance of faithful endurance. The author himself refers to this letter in chapter 13, verse 22, as a word of exhortation. He's exhorting these weary Christians, and what is he exhorting them to? He's exhorting them to endure. And this call to perseverance or endurance is a coin with two sides to it. On one side, there's a call to cleave to Christ, to cling to Him, hold tightly to Him. And on the other side, it's a warning to avoid falling away. Now, I want to read two passages to you because these two passages, I think, best encapsulate the message of the book of Hebrews. If you're wanting to memorize a short verse or a couple of verses through our series so that you can remember what Hebrews is about, either one of these would be great ones. They both contain the first side of the coin, the call to cleave to Christ. So as I read them, just listen for that call to hold fast to Christ. The first is chapter 4 and verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And then he says something very similar at another key turning point in the, in the letter, and that's at chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Hebrews 10 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hold fast to the confession. Draw near. Cling to Jesus. Cleave to Him. That is the essence of the call to endure. He's saying, you're weary. What you need to do is you need to hold Jesus more. You need to know Him better. You need to hold tight to Jesus. Hold fast your confession. Draw near. That's the heart of the book. But that call to cling to Christ has another side to it. A side the author does not shy away from. And it's the warning not to fall away. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, contains some of the strongest warnings in all of Scripture. Just listen to a couple of them from chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapter 6. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have shared in the Holy Spirit and then fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Chapter 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment 
and chapter 12. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, in the Old Testament, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Those are strong warnings, and we're going we're gonna to tease through those as we go through the book, or work through those. But it's part of the author's call to these weary Christians to endure. He's calling them to endure, and more specifically, it's a call to avoid the pitfalls of sin and to cling to Christ. So that's the pervading call. But it doesn't make up the bulk of the letter of Hebrews. The bulk of the letter is given to things like the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, and even an obscure reference to some Old Testament figure named Melchizedek, which is hard enough to say, let alone understand. I mean, what gives? Why all this dry and obscure reference to Old Testament rituals? I mean, that's the kind of arcane minutia that makes Hebrews such an intimidating book. Surely that's not relevant to us today. We don't even know what those things are. But this is the exciting thing. It's in the interplay between that Old Testament content and the call of the book to endure that I think we find the real excitement, the real message of the book of Hebrews. It's what makes the book so riveting, so compelling, so convicting, so revealing. And it's the reason, this interplay between all that Old Testament comment and that call to endure, that's the reason I think this book is so needed today. Yes, the call of the author is for weary Christians to endure, but what is the means, the means by which he does that? How does he call them to endure? The means by which he calls them to endure is this. Preaching the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way. So he looks at a bunch of people who've worn down in their faith, who are petering out, who have spiritual anemia, and he says, I know what I need to do to them. I need to take the Old Testament Scriptures and I need to preach the Old Testament to them in a way that they can actually see Christ as he is. His solution, his means by which he calls them to endure is to preach the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way. Now, all the emphasis in Hebrews on the Old Testament has led some to conclude that the book was written to a specific group of Jewish Christians who were tempted to fall back into Judaism. They believe that the author writes to show them that Jesus is better than the angels better than Moses, better than the priests, better than the tabernacle, better than the sacrificial system. And they're right. The book of Hebrews uses the word better some 13 times. But we must guard ourselves against reducing Hebrews to the message Jesus and the new covenant are better than Judaism. As true as that statement might be. The The author's use of the Old Testament is not as a foil to Christ. 
The language is not of two competing things in opposition to one another. The language throughout is that of a shadow that points us and leads us to the substance. So think of Hebrews 10.1. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. He's not preaching the Old Testament so that they won't go back to the Old Testament and its system. He's preaching the Old Testament because it points them to what they need to cling to. It points them to Christ. Now, I just want to pause for a moment here and say, I know there are some who are here who are not followers of Christ. You say, spiritual anemia, I'm not even a spiritual person. Maybe I'm spiritual, but I'm not a follower of Christ. The book of Hebrews is going to be a wonderful study for you. Because if what it says is true, you're going to have to grapple with what the Bible teaches. Because the Old Testament was written way before Christ came. And if the author's right that all these things are what they are, he makes very specific, he'll, he'll go to very words in the Old Testament and say, why in this psalm is this word right here? You can't make sense of that word right there unless it's pointing forward to Christ. And you can evaluate the arguments that the author of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit makes and say, are they legit? Is it a compelling argument? And if it's a compelling argument, you've got some grappling to do because... Here's stuff written hundreds and sometimes a thousand years before Christ came, pointing to him in clear and undeniable ways. But if you come and you listen and you look and you say, hey, he's just pulling stuff out of thin air, then go ahead, move on, reject Christianity. Indeed, I'll tell you that for me, one of the great assurances for my faith, when my faith wobbles when I say, oh, this ra- I'm, you know, in my rational mind, as I look at everything, how does it all make sense? Is Christianity true? One of the great apologetics for me is looking to things like what Hebrews points us to, how that Old Testament only holds together in light of Christ. So if you are a visitor with us, or maybe you're regular here with us, but you struggle with those things, I'm glad you're here. Please stay for the study of Hebrews, because it's good. This author, he he glories in delving into the mysteries of the Old Testament and seeing how they find their culmination in Christ. So if you just want to think about the letter in three big sections, the first letter or the first section is chapters one to four. There he focuses on the Old Testament theme of God's Son. Chapters one to four, God's Son. And he shows how all the talk of, old, of God's Son in the Old Testament only makes sense in light of Christ. Then he'll especially camp out with a final exhortation in Psalm 95. Then that middle section, chapters 5 to 10, he focuses on the Old Testament priesthood. And he gets into everything that goes with it. So he talks about the tabernacle. He talks about the sacrifices. And there he talks about how the Old Testament priesthood and the different things that are said about the Old Testament priesthood in the Old Testament don't make sense except for in light of Christ. And there he camps out primarily in Psalm 110 and Jeremiah 31. So God's Son, Old Testament priesthood, two Old Testament themes. Then he concludes by thinking about how we should live in light of those themes, and he focuses in chapters 11 to 13 on faith. 
But he doesn't just talk about faith detached from the Old Testament. It's rooted in a broad survey of, Old Te- of the Old Testament on the theme of faith. That's how he structured the book. He's, he's not trying to warn them against falling back into Judaism, though that might be something they would pick up. He is preaching the Old Testament to them. He's pleading with them for their souls. Endure, cling to Christ. And the way he's pleading with them is from the Old Testament. He is giving them the meat that they so desperately need. So let's just review then what we've seen. I talked about the first section of my sermon is the recipients. They were weary Christians who were weak because they'd neglected the deep study of God's Word. Weary Christians, weak because they neglected the deep study of God's Word. Then we saw the call. It's a call to endure, which has two sides to it. Cling to Christ. Don't fall away. And we saw the means. Preach Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures. As we've been going along, I've talked about the recipients as suffering from spiritual anemia. Do you know what the prescription is? For those who have anemia, usually it's a change in your diet. Eat more green stuff. Get more iron. Get more B12. Eat food with better nutrients. The solution to spiritual anemia is the same. We need spiritual food that is more nutritious. What is God's prescription for spiritual anemia? It's the rich, Christ-exalting study of Scripture. God's prescription for spiritual anemia is the rich, Christ-exalting study of Scripture. We don't need iron and B12. We need to know Christ fully. We need to actually study the Scriptures and get to know our Savior in new and deeper ways. We need to eat meat and not just drink milk. I think all of us experience a bit of spiritual anemia. Maybe you're feeling it now. Maybe you're in a season right now. Maybe it's something you'll face. Wearied and worn down. The waves knock us too easily off course. We feel like we're coasting. Our ears are dull of hearing. What is God's solution? His solution is to dig deep into God's Word and to know it and all the connections within it, understanding it on its own terms in a deep, rich, Christ-exalting way. And if that's God's solution for you, there is no better place to start than the book of Hebrews because it will serve for us as an incredible primer, a roadmap that will help us navigate the Old Testament so that we can get to know Jesus from it. So this book teaches us how to understand the priesthood. This book teaches us how to understand the tabernacle and the temple. This book teaches us how to understand the sacrificial system. It teaches us how to make sense of the new covenant that the prophets foretold. It even teaches us how to read the Psalms. 
And that's a pretty good chunk of the Old Testament. If you get Hebrews down, you can really start to make hay in the Old Testament. Now, I need to tell you about something really strange that happened to me a, a little bit ago. Uh, I had the occasion where Karen was going to make a meal for me that was whatever I wanted. And my thought went to vegetables. <laughs> I thought about salad. I thought about asparagus. Now, if you know me, that's, that's like not at all who I am. Like if you had told me when I was 20 years old that one day I would be thinking about what kind of salad I could have at a meal, I would have said, that ain't me. That'll never be me. You see, I had this idea in my head of what vegetables were. If it's green, I had an idea of what it tastes like, and I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I had a mental block in my mind to anything green because I tasted it. I, I dabbled with it here and there, tasted it on one or two occasions. It was gross. <laughs> and then Karen came along and slowly and winsomely started actually showing me how good green things can taste. And now I actually desire those green things. Maybe you see where I'm going with this. For many of us, the Old Testament's like that. Or even just deep study of any part of Scripture. Yeah, yeah, I know it's good for me, but I've opened it up and read a few of those verses and it doesn't taste good. I don't like that. Keep that at arm's length. That's not what I desire. I'm never going to be like, oh, I want to read the Old Testament. I might do it on occasion because I have to, because the doctor said to. But I think what the, the book of Hebrews will do for us is a little bit what Karen did for me. It's going to prepare them in the right way so we can actually taste them and see how good they are. And it's going to increase our appetite for this nutrient-rich food that we desperately need if we're going to endure. And in so doing, I think it will give us a way forward for curing our own spiritual anemia. So, have I convinced you that you, not your wife, not your family, not your friends, you need the book of Hebrews? I hope I have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Hebrews. I think many of us are feeling a little bit of that weariness this morning. And we realize we aren't feeding ourselves with the rich nutrients you've intended. So I pray that your spirit be even working today, increasing our excitement about learning Christ in a new way from the book of Hebrews. May we go from here eager to study, eager to learn, eager to hear your voice. Bless our time in this book. Thank you for Hebrews. In Jesus' name, amen.